He's a retired law enforcement officer. While serving as a law enforcement cadet, he had a family member that was brutally murdered. And he talks about his own officer-involved shooting and how he uses that as inspiration for writing his best-selling books. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. One of the questions I get all the time is how can I show my support for law enforcement? Well, we're all busy. You probably can't go to a protest march. You probably can't go picket somewhere. But there's something very simple you can do with Facebook. When you see a post that you agree with, that you like, share it to your page. It's just that simple. Think of it this way. Facebook has about 2 billion registered users worldwide. So you can make a difference. And one of the best places to find great posts about law enforcement, our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Click like and follow. And when you see posts that you like, you agree with, especially episodes of the radio show and podcast, be sure to share it on your social media. Again, do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. And then show your support by sharing. Kai Tati is from Southern California. We are tired law enforcement officer and award-winning novelist, David Putnam, on the phone. David, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Very much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. And by the way, you've got so many agencies you work for. I don't want to slight them. I'll let you say that because I'll get them wrong. You were in law enforcement for a very, very long time. Yes. Uh, I started off as a sheriff's explorer, and I went to police cadet. I was a cadet for two years, and then I started at law enforcement as a police officer at 20 for Ontario Police Department. Then I transferred to L.A. County Sheriff's for four years, worked South Central Los Angeles, and I transferred to San Bernardino County Sheriff's, where I did 22 years. At the end of 28 years in Southern California, I uh, retired and went to work as a special agent for the state of Hawaii for the Real Hawaii Five O. For the Real Hawaii Five O, not the Bookum Dano TV type we're used to. <laughs> right, it was the Real Hawaii Five O. Yeah, and here's a little little bit of trivia for those. I and I got to admit, I wasn't sure where they got the name from. Hawaii Five O, the nickname for police. 5-0 came from that series, Hawaii 5-0. Uh, and I never right. knew that until a few years ago. Where have I been all these years? Yeah. And, and 5-0 comes from the, 50th um, state. the state of Hawaii, is the 50th state, right. I, I, would come to, I would come to work and the fake Hawaii 5-0 car would be parked in my slot, even. <laughs> the fake Hawaii 5-0. I remember, and yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, and it may change since you were there or before you got there, but there was a time I was looking at going to Hawaii to be a police officer, and I was already working in Baltimore. My sister was a travel nurse, and she said, hey, come to Hawaii. The only thing is you got to buy your own police car. You have to provide your own equipment. I'm like, what? Did you ever hear <laughs> no. that? No. Um, there's, there's, there's a. <laughs> I didn't learn this till I got there. There's a footman 
which back back in the day uh, walked the beat, and you promoted up to a motorman, which is driving a car. And, and a lot of the cars, now the footman drives a, a marked police car and a motorman is a, a promotion to a plane wrap car. And I, I think that they give you a stipend now for those cars. They do things differently out there. Uh, all I know is this. Yeah, they definitely. Everybody tells me it's a wonderful yeah, place to live. I had a sister. was a, Her husband was a sign here in the Navy. I had a sister who was there as the traveling nurse, and she said it's a great place to visit, but so expensive. Just the food cost alone would be enough to bankrupt just about anybody. So how people can live on a police officer's budget out there and earnings, I just don't know. Yeah, you, you couldn't live uh, along the coast. You have to live inland where it's less expensive to live. And then you have to know the places where to go to buy food. Um, and it's not that bad, really. There we go. Well, so now you're back stateside. Uh, and it, we talked uh, preparing for the interview. When you were a police cadet, which for a lot of people, they don't understand, that's where you enter into like it's almost like boy scouts or girl scouts for law enforcement as a teenager. And there's a certain assignments, but you had a situation when you were a cadet where a family member was murdered. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, it kind of started before that, uh, way back when my mom was, uh, grew up in thermal California, which is the second hottest place in the world next to death Valley. And she lived in a travel trailer with her two sisters, um, Virginia and Carol, and all three sisters had different fathers. The, my aunt Virginia and my mom turned out okay, but my aunt Carol went, went the wrong way. Um, so my mom, yeah, I had six, I had five brothers and sisters, six of us, and my mom uh, had to sell toys on a party plan to support us. So she would ship me off in the summertime because she couldn't handle all the kids and, and the work at the same time. So I'd spend a month out in Redondo Beach with my Aunt Virginia, and then a month in, in Indio where my Aunt Carol landed. My mom, I remember my first memory, my mom put me on a Greyhound bus um, to go visit Aunt Carol, and I was sitting in, up front by the driver with a a paper grocery bag full of my clothes and we're driving I'm nine years old we're driving um, to Indio and uh, I remember distinctly because this seagull hit the front of this windshield and splattered all over the windshield and it startled me and the, the driver turned on the windshield wipers and just made a bigger mess of the thing and it, it was it was startling for that age so my aunt picks me up at the Greyhound station and this this all comes later on it'll it'll, it'll, it'll come they'll understand um and she says uh you, you, i'm gonna take you kids to the movies and we stopped and got candy at the store and i remember it's a chicken on stick and she dropped us off bought bear tickets and we went in and sat down and i'm sitting there watching and the movie comes on is in cold blood in, in black and white and i'm nine years old and it took me to in cold blood so Fast forward uh, to I'm a cadet. I was an explorer first, which is the Boy Scout thing that you're talking about. But a cadet is like an intern for the police department. He's like a gopher. Gotcha. And he, he works the front desk and he fingerprints um, the sex registrants, the the teachers, and the um, druggies. So what happened was my aunt and my cousin Danny, little Danny, we called him, he was 17 years old, and they were selling tar heroin for the Mexican mafia. And my uncle, he was my favorite uncle, he was just a great guy. He worked for the Metropolitan Water District out there, which was important because it's the Coachella Valley. So he was he was um, well-known. 
he found out my, my aunt was selling tar heroin and said, you stop it or I'm going to call the cops. And uh, my aunt, I, I don't know, I don't know this part about it, but she put a um, double life insurance policy on him. And then she hired a hitman named Cornelius out of Orange County. And you can Google all this. It's all it's a all matter of public record. And they stiffed in a call to the Metropolitan from saying that there was an emergency at the Metropolitan Water District. My uncle drives out there, gets out to unlock the gate, and they walk up behind him and they assassinate him. Wow, we're talking um, with David Putnam. we got so much more to talk about this case and, and the ramifications cause with his law enforcement career uh, and how it inspired him to continue his career in law enforcement, his books, and more. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. We're taking a short break. I promise you, we'll be right back. One of the questions I get all the time is how can I show my support for law enforcement? Well, we're all busy. You probably can't go to a protest march. You probably can't go pick it somewhere. But there's something very simple you can do with Facebook. When you see a post that you agree with, that you like, share it to your page. It's just that simple. Think of it this way. Facebook has about 2 billion registered users worldwide. So you can make a difference. And one of the best places to find great posts about law enforcement, our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Click like and follow. And when you see posts that you like, you agree with, especially episodes of the radio show and podcast be sure to share it on your social media again do a search on facebook for law enforcement today radio show be sure to click like and follow and then show your support by sharing this is law enforcement today's show joining us from california we have david putnam as a guest, David is a retired law enforcement officer, and he is also author of multiple books. His website is davidputnambooks.com. We'll talk about his books later on. Before we the break, David, you're talking about the murder of your uncle. This was your mother's sister's husband. Am I correct? That's correct. That's correct. And before and, we get into the story, it's... Yeah, a police cadet, in my agency, we had police cadets, and they served like in the hot desk, they did reports, they did a lot of other things, clerical type work, as they aged, and it it gave them a head start with the retirement, Uh, and then they went to the academy. One of the things is, you couldn't have anything that sullied your reputation in our department, Uh, so to be in a situation where you're a cadet and you have an aunt, before we get into the details of the murder, you have an aunt that's involved in selling uh, tar heroin. That puts an inordinate amount of pressure on you, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. As a young, um, and what were you, 17? Oh, uh, I, I was, I think I was 18. Yeah, I, was, I just turned 18. That's still a lot to deal was, with. In, in law enforcement yeah. or anybody. Uh, so your aunt was dealing heroin. Uh, your 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 her husband, your uncle, you liked him. Uh, she had a double life insurance, and then before we had a break, you talk about they they made the stage call that there's some sort of water emergency, so he showed up or he responded. Right, and and so they they they, they killed him, and the, the police investigated it, but they didn't have any leads because they used a a middleman, uh, this this hitman Cornelius. So they ended up wiring my cousin's girlfriend. They, they wired her for sound, and they sent her in for conversation. 
and they got my cousin, the cop, out to killing my uncle. So they arrested my aunt, Carol, and my cousin, and they were pending trial in, in jail. And two attorneys, my aunt talked my cousin into taking the whole rap, saying that she, that, that Aunt Carol had nothing to do with it. And she promised that when she got out, she would do everything she could to get him out. And then he did that, and she just walked away. And he went, he got uh, LWAP, which is life without the possibility of parole. Um, he did 48 years before just recently the governor let him out. But anyway, um, my aunt gets, while my aunt's in, in, in jail working through this before she's let out, um, my mom takes Ronald and Julie, the, my other two niece and nephew, and takes them back home to Ontario. This happened in, the murder happened in Coachella. Um, and so my mom is watching over her niece and nephew while my aunt is going through investigations. So um, my mom was going out to visit, and somehow she got sideways with my aunt and got into an argument. And they, they pulled the same stunt in my mom's house. This is now this is in Ontario when I was a cadet in Ontario. Um, they called my mom and pulled her away for some kind of uh, quasi-emergency. And then my aunt had the Mexican mafia kick my mom's door in and kidnap Julie and Ronald from my house in Ontario, the house I grew up in in Ontario. So if, someone else told, a lot of, if someone else told you a story, David, you'd be going, <laughs> what the heck are you talking about? I know. I know. It, it, was, it was a crazy time. It sounds, it sounds like we're watching an episode of one of those Discovery Channel shows where, who did I marry or my neighbor next door? It's <laughs> like, well, this is insanity. Right. So all of this background kind of informed uh, my my writing. I, I write from, you know, uh, true life experiences. And I, and I put a lot of my real life incidents in the in the, in the books. And I, I had a pretty uh, wild career, too. Right, in, well, before we know, get into your career, so I got to ask you a question. Okay. Do you ever feel like yeah. I don't want to tell people this story because they're going to look at me like there's something wrong with me, like this guy's in outer space, like a mental case? You know, yeah, people would ask me that that same question. I'd say it felt like it was everybody was going through the same thing to me. You know, like all families had had their skeletons, and you know, you watch television, you see that stuff on television too. So it, it just for some reason I just thought, yeah, this is just like what everybody goes through. Really, the reason I bring that up, there's parts of my my story, and the reason I don't talk about them on my radio show is it's not just my story; it's my daughter's story, it's my ex wife's story, it's my current wife's story, my mother, my sisters, right? uh, Because they all have the same last name, and and I have to be respectful of that. But the other reason is some of them are so bizarre that normal people this this goes back to, and I'm going to ask you this: normal people like at the cookout. When you start telling them, oh, yeah, what it's really like, they're like, uh, you can stop anytime now because I don't want to hear this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a story that in the, I was working in Low Desert. I was a supervisor out in Low Desert. And it's a, this, Simeon County is 20,000 square miles. It's the largest county in the contiguous United States. It's huge. And this one station out in Morongo, Joshua Tree, um, covered 2,200 square miles, just the one station. And all these fringe people from society go out there to live. And um, the story, <laughs> I tell a story, nobody believes it, but I kept the call history on it. 
Um, it was a hell and it was on Halloween and this guy was a drug addict. He, he was into muscle relaxers and, um, he took, I think we figured he took 30 or 35 that day because his tolerance had built up and he was walking across his front yard when his body decided to shut down. And he just died. He dropped dead right in his front yard and these trick or treaters were coming and trick or treating and they thought that he was uh, a prop. And so they were stepping over him and going to the house to get the, 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 the trick-or-treats, the candy. So long about midnight, the, the wife, she's in there watching, she, she's just she's watching the big screen television, the door open, it's cold, it's a low desert. Um, and she looks out and her husband's um, DFO, that's what they call it, and he done fell out. So like he's he done before, so she goes out and picks him up by the ankle and drags him into the house. And he's banging his head and tearing his shirt. Gets him in the house. She fills his face and he's cold. So she gets a temp, gets a thermometer, and tries to stick it in his mouth. But he's got a rigor mortis and his jaws locked tight. So she flips him over, pulls his pants down, sticks a thermometer in his in his butt, and pulls it out. Always oh, cold. Takes all his clothes off, and she's using that dryer to heat him to, to warm him up, to warm his body up. And um, as it happened, it was a it was a a well-patrolled area because it was a high crime area. And the deputy's driving by real slow, and, and she looks out the door and she sees him. She runs out, deputy, deputy, my my husband's sick. And he, the deputy calls medical aid. He comes running in, and there's a naked dead guy on his stomach with a thermometer in his butt, and a lady with a hair dryer trying to warm him up. Oh now, my god! I tell her that story. <laughs> yeah. Try to- <laughs> That's the weirdest story that I had in my 31 years of my career. We could talk about extremely bizarre stories. And police, and I say police, that means sheriff's deputies, all former law, have some of the most bizarre stories ever. This is the Law Enforcement Day show. We're turning our conversation with David Putnam and talk about his police career, his law enforcement career, and then go into how all this motivates him to write his award-winning novels. This is the Law Enforcement Day show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. There was social media, and then there was social audio. Now the Breakout app combines the best of both. Best of all, the Breakout app is free with versions for iPhone and Android devices. You can download the app for free at the App Store and Google Play, or you can download for free at www.letbreak.com. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with David Putnam on the Law Enforcement Today Show. David is a retired law enforcement officer, uh, like 28, 29 years in law enforcement. He's also an award-winning novelist and writer. His books are available. Get more information about him and his website, davidputnambooks.com. David, you've got some bizarre, phenomenal stories. And, and sad, sadly, they're all true. That's the part that people seem to miss out on. And one of the things they miss out on is the realities of working in law enforcement. For example, how much trauma law enforcement officers are exposed to how much violence they see and, and sometimes how much violence is a, it, where they're the victim they're the the target you went through a situation during your police career where you had to use deadly force am i correct yes 
And the reason, yeah, the reason I say that is because so many, and here's a misconception a lot of people have, so many law enforcement officers go their entire career and they say, I never pulled my gun except at a range. I always said this, David, where did they work? Because it wasn't like that in Baltimore. I was in four shootings in a little more than 10 years. And fortunately, everybody survived the first two. I never even fired back at, which goes contrary to what the news media says about police or officer involved shootings. Back then, we didn't call them officer involved. They're just shootings. Yeah, that's true. I think I was in total of 16, I think, was, was I counted, where I was I was either shooting or I was standing there when shots were being fired and people were going down. And if you told people that, um, they'd say right away that you got a propensity towards violence or something wrong with you. <laughs> that's true, but I was working on a violent crimes team. They did two tours on SWAT, and you know we were put into those situations uh, chasing the bad guys. That's exactly what I would say too. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't make this happen. I responded to a call or someone shot at me. And here's the thing before we get into your, your, your officer involved shooting, we talk about in depth. When people shot at me, I was shocked. My first reaction was, you don't even know me. Why are you shooting at me? Right. Yeah. I since I now realize mean. it's because <laughs> of, of what the uniform I wore. That's why. All right. The first, the first time I was, I was brand new, young, and uh, I started early. I started. They hired me at twenty because I was a cadet. Went to the academy, went through training. When I got off on my own, I uh, went to an armed robbery of a photomat, and that's back when they had those kiosks in the in the parking lot, so we don't have them anymore. You drive up and put the, the drop your your film off, then come pick it up a few days later. Well, there two people robbed this kiosk, and I want to I'll, I'll shorten this story a little bit because it gets a little long. And the look on that woman's face and the fear, I wanted to chase the people that caused that. And so I started chasing violence very early in my career. And um, as a patrol officer, um, I did a detective job. I kept, I would answer my calls, but on the side, I would be working these armed robberies. I'd pull the reports, I'd have my own pin maps, and I was arresting um Farm robbers after the fact. Um, and it ha- as it happened, I, when I counted back, when I look back on it, it happened to be the 13th one that I went after. And I was making $600 a month straight time as a patrol officer, and I had to pay rent and my car and insurance. So I would go home for dinner and eat macaroni and cheese and hot dogs. And I didn't care because I was having a great time. I was having a time in my life. Um, and an armed robbery call goes out. And I knew the officer was going, he was going to go slow and get there after the fact because um, it came out as an in-progress robbery. So I cleared by lunch and I'm, I just turned 21. So, I, you know, they gave me a fast car, a gun and told me to chase bad guys. And it was just, I was in heaven. So I, I break lunch and I'm driving up to the call, driving up to the call, tell dispatch. And she tells, she advises over the radio that the suspects are two white males and uh, denim jackets, they're armed with handguns, and they're running from the location. It's a it's the market basket grocery store that I went to as a kid um, with my mom for years. Um, we went there, so I knew the area. Uh, and this dispatch said that the box boys are chasing the two suspects. So I asked on the radio. I said, um, "Are the box boys armed?" And she says, "No." And that's when she catches on that this is this is a damn normal situation. Market Basket is on mountain, and and their side streets in the back are perpendicular to uh, Market Basket. So I just picked one because I knew the area. I had to choose a, a choice of five streets. I picked one, drove down the street, and a car was blocking. Car was blocking the street. 
And a guy was standing outside the car, um, pointing toward the house. So I stopped. I advised dispatch. I was in foot pursuit of an armed suspect, even though I hadn't seen him yet. I knew I was going to be engaging this guy. Yeah, you can just tell. So, yeah, uh, because I'm, I'm right on him. I mean, this guy had just tried to carjack this guy because he's running from the market basket. So, um as it turns out, the, the sergeant who was responding was setting a perimeter, and he had stepped on my radio transmission, so nobody knew where I was. Nobody heard the call go out, my call go out. So I ran up to the house, and there's a man that comes out the front door, very elderly, and I and he says, he's in my backyard. So I said, can I go through your house? And he turns around too slow, but uh, I think I was just probably too pumped up and too young, so I... I I couldn't follow him. I went to the side. I just vaulted his fence, and his dog attacks me, comes at me. And I shoot the dog off. He calls the dog, and I run to the fence, and I could hear the guy yard jumping. He's going over fences. Um, and it's, this is at dusk. It's low light, um, just after sunset, and it's got that sparkly, you know, that that, that gray air, grayness in the, in, the, in the air kind of thing. Um, and so I keep jumping yards until I don't hear him anymore. And I do a quick peek, look over, move down, do a quick peek, and I go over the fence. And I'm looking in um, the backyard and all the shrubs thinking that he's, he's laying in wait. And I look up, and through the sliding glass door, he'd gone in the house. And this, this white guy with a, with a Levi jacket has a kid in a, in a headlock holding his feet up off the ground and has a gun to his head. And he yells, quit chasing me. I'm going to kill you. So um, I, I line up on him. I don't know what to do because this is my first you know, violent encounter. Um, and uh, I, I, I give a talk on, on anatomy of violence and what it takes to shoot somebody. And after analyzing it, I had the legal right the moral right, but at that point, I didn't have the emotional ability to pull that trigger. Right. I aimed at him, and my, my, my thoughts were, is it the old sheer glass or is it the safety glass? Because if it's the old sheer glass, it's going to deflect my route. And I was confident. I was number two in the academy on, on the handgun. I could hit the guy from where I was. It was about a 25-foot shot, but I didn't know about the glass. So I said, you shoot the kid, I'm going to shoot you. He, he sees me lying up on him with my sight, so he pushes the kid down. He runs out the front door. I go to the side and jump the fence, and as I'm jumping the fence, I hear, there he is, there he is, get him. And that was the street the box boys were on. And as I as I come over the fence into the yard, the box boys go, there, there's the police, get him, there, that's the guy. And so they're off about a half a block down to my right, and a crook is off to my left running through the front yards of this, of this block. And so I start chasing him. I could clearly see he had a chrome 38 in his hand. And still, I had the legal right, the moral right, but I still did not have the emotional ability to pull the trigger. Um, and he was yelling the whole time, I'm going to kill you. Keep chasing me. I'm going to kill you. And uh, I, I continue to chase him. He cuts up between some houses. And uh, I, he's going to go over another fence. And I know he's going to lay in wait for me. So I stop at the sidewalk and I yell, stop, or I'm going to shoot. And this is a long shot, and it's a technical shot because it's low light, he's moving, and it's a long distance. And um, he keeps going. He gets up on the fence. He's about to go over, and I yell, last chance, because I didn't want to shoot. And I actually pulled the hammer back because, in my mind, my training had told me that I had to go single action or I wasn't going to hit him. I even It wasn't even like a conscious thought. And um, just before he went over, I, I, I tugged the hammer, and it, and it popped. 
and he goes up in the air, flips around, and lands on his back. And he's teetering on, on his back on his fence. And, and he's yelling, oh, my God, you shot me. You shot me. We're, so short break. We're talking with David Putnam, and I, I really want to return his conversation. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. So much more to talk about. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. John discovered a cool new app, and he just can't put it down because it has millions of great podcasts, including Law Enforcement Today. So now you can listen anytime, anywhere, and also chat with John. It's called Podopolo. It's free on either app store, so join John there. Follow Law Enforcement Today and DM John when you do. That's Podopolo. Download it now. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Return conversation with David Putnam, retired law enforcement officer, also author of multiple award-winning books. Get more details at his website, davidputnambooks.com. David, before we went to break, we're talking about this incident where you're chasing a guy. And I got to tell you, I'm like, adrenaline is going and I'm visualizing the stuff I went through. Um, and, and you're telling in detail, specific detail, your thought process, all these things. And I just want people to understand something. From my experience, and I'm sure it's the same with you, these things happen in a flash, and we have more time to think about it afterwards. But what's going on, it's it's quick reaction. You resort to your training, all those things. So you talked about you fired a shot, and the guy was kind of like balancing on top of the fence. I'm like, was he hit? Yeah, so um, I start moving up on him. I'm about halfway to him, and I'm, I'm yelling, I'm dropping the gun because I can still see the gun in his hand. I start thinking that he's trying to draw me in because there's no way I hit him. Like I said, it was a long shot, long distance. It was low light and moving, and there was just no way that I hit the guy. Um, so uh, I'm yelling, drop the gun, drop the gun, and I stop halfway because I think he's trying to lure me in for a closer shot. And um, he realizes, I, I, I stay came at him again, I'm going to shoot him. And he realizes I'm going to shoot him, and he throws the gun down, and he flips over. When he does, he, he loses his balance. He flips over out of my out of my side, on the inside side of the fence. Um, and when, the, when I fired the shot, the, the buzz, it all of a sudden turned too real for the box boys, and they turned around. They were running the other direction. So I'm all by myself. I go up to this cedar plank fence a gate, and I look over, do a quick peek, and he had fallen on his stomach. Um, and the, the money from the market basket was in a paper bag and it had fluffed out and was well, all over the, the patio. And underneath him was this widening puddle of blood. Um, so I get up, on, I climb up on the cedar plank fence. I look down on him, and I, I can't see his hands. So I say, "Show me your hands," and he won't show me. And I'm all pumped up with adrenaline, so I drop on him. I knee drop him. I break his leg and his hip when I landed on him, and I start handcuffing him. He's going, "No, don't handcuff me. I'm shot. I'm shot." So I get him cuffed and um, search him. I can't find the gun. The guns happen to fall in the on the adjoining uh, yard on the other side of the fence. We find it later. Um, but I call on the radio and ask for help, and they don't know where I am. I don't know where I am. I go to the sliding glass door of that house, and a woman, I see a woman, she's wearing a, a, a night robe. She, I guess she got ready for bed early, and she ran to her bedroom, closed the door, and she didn't call the police. And this 
helped me later on in my career because I, I had a similar situation where I just commandeered the house. I was smart enough to go in and commandeer the house and barricade and use the phone. Um, so in this incident, uh, they put a person, a cop, right each end of the street, and they walked him down yelling my name, and that's how they found me. Um, the first guy that the guy that found me was a guy named Art Bills. He was six foot three, uh, two hundred fifty pounds, and he was a black belt in karate. One of the baddest dudes I ever, I ever met. And he looked over the fence. He saw me, and he was so pumped up that he just pushed the whole cedar gate, everything down, um, and, and walked over and shook my hand and said, good job, you did a good job. Which really, really helped me a lot. Um, I, I was hyperventilating sitting on that oh, yeah. picnic bench. I, I, um, I got to tell you, the last shooting I was involved in, first and the last were totally different, but I was, uh, the, the third one actually, I was vomiting afterwards. And that, that I was a experienced officer. So the the emotions that come with that. Earlier you said right, something right. a couple times, you know, having the moral right, the legal right, everything's right, but not having the emotional ability to to do that. And a lot of people after you're forced to use deadly force, the the results, the emotional impact can be devastating. How were you after? Well, there's there's a little bit more to the story. It, it turns out that these guys were serial robbers, and they had robbed the farmer's market and a pharmacy that day, and they had shot the pharmacist. And I'd hit him as he was going over, and it went through just under his tailbone. And it just went right through him, his prostate, upper his colon, his upper and lower intestine, lodged in his chest, and the paramedics got there and saved him. Um, he had four balloons of heroin um, in a keister stash up in his rectum. And the doctor said if I had been an inch lower, um, he would have overdosed on heroin, which would have been, you know, poetic justice. But the pharmacist that he had shot that day uh, was a nurse at the hospital that he took him to. So there was a little bit of irony uh, in that. Um, and uh, I lost my train of thought. What we're getting at is... Yeah. You know, all things being righteous, a justified shoot, all those things, quite often it doesn't take away the experience for, especially a young officer, and you said you're hyperventilating, and I'm just curious, were, did it take you a while to process that? Because back in the day, we didn't have all we have nowadays. We didn't have crisis intervention teams and peer support. We had the suck it up buttercup police, your police attitude, on the next call. Yeah. Yeah, and and back then they said uh, there was there was a they gave you like uh, two weeks off to, to to recalibrate, but back then it had just the, the, the thinking had just shifted, and they said it was better to get him right back on the horse. So they gave me the time off, and then one captain decided no, that wasn't right. So the next day I was off. I was supposed to be at work, but they I took it off, and they called me and said no, you're coming back to work. So so I, came, I came back into work the, the very next day, yeah. Got back in the car and started driving around. As if nothing happened. Yeah. As if nothing happened, yeah. That's right. You get, I'm yeah. going to handle calls like nothing happened. Look, you and I can joke and laugh yeah. about that, but here's the reality. And before we get into your novels and your life after is, you know, I tell people I cried quite often in a patrol car. You never saw me cry in public. That was, except maybe police funerals. Uh, however, you go from a life and death, really traumatic incident to a parking complaint or a neighborhood dispute or some other routine call and act as if nothing right. had happened. Uh, and I can just see you going from a life and death situation like this to handling routine calls the next day as if nothing happened. 
And you go to a domestic dispute and people are arguing, and it's so insignificant to, in comparison to what's just happened. You know what I mean? It's like, why are you people even arguing about something so petty when the real world is out there? You know what I mean? Oh, well, the he said, she said, I have no tolerance for <laughs> Just right, right, uh, Please right. rule me for that. And uh, I tell my wife all the time, we'll, we'll turn on the television. It'll be these shows where they have so-called pundits arguing about stuff. I'm like, I can't, I can't listen to that. It reminds me of domestic disputes. I can't do it, David. So you retired right. from police work and, and began a career as an author. Uh, before we get into specifics, did your police career was that a motivator for you writing your books? Well, I was I was an avid reader before I was involved in law enforcement, and I read everything I mean, from a very young age. So I, I think Adam Twelve and um, Joseph Wamba kind of pushed me into law enforcement. So when I was a cop, I was on a looking narcotics. I was on a surveillance of a meth lab out in the Surin Valley, which is Mojave Desert, nothing out there. And it's not like in the movies where um, the, all the cops are watching the same house. When you're on a surveillance, one guy has the eye and everybody else is laid off. Right. So now they they gave me a fast car, a gun, and a badge to chase bad guys. And I got to read books, which was the number one thing I used to, I love to do. So I was down to my last book in the backseat of my car. I stored in the backseat of my car. The first one was an international bestseller, so I bought the second one. But what happens so often is an author will write for 10 years on one book, finally get it published then he has one year to write the next book so i read i was a captive audience i'd read this whole book and it was just a dog of a book um and when i got done i thought i, I could do better than this so this is 1989 and i wrote my first four novels on the front seat of my cop car during surveillances that's amazing and each book was each book was four legal pads long and so that started my career. I started writing when I was at, when I was still a copper. And I would uh, get up at, at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'd write for three hours and go to work. And I would do that every day. And how many books so do you was, have to your credit um, now? Well, I was on my 38th manuscript. I wrote 38 books before I sold my first one. And so I'm on book, and that was in 2014 when I sold my first book, which was called The Disposables. And it's a continuing series with a character named Bruno Johnson. He's an African-American detective. Well, he's an ex-cop, ex-con, who rescues children from toxic homes. He couldn't do it when he was a cop, so now he goes outside the law to rescue these children. And he has a makeshift uh, orphanage down in Costa Rica where he takes the children. And uh, number nine came out in February, and it got a starred review on Publishers Weekly, which is the industry standard for the for publishing. And I was really proud that it, you know, it's the first time that I got a starred review, and that's a killer book. We are it's almost out of time. Where can people find out information about you in all your books? Because you got lots of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, David, David at davidputnambooks dot com is my website. And I just had a new one come out. It's called The Fierce of Moonlight Black. And it's a second series. Um, and the first part is all, all memoir. It's the true stories of everything that happened in my career in the first year. David, thanks so much for being guests in the Law Enforcement Today show. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing if you enjoyed the podcast version of the show please do me a big favor tell a friend i'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the law enforcement today radio show and podcast until then this is john j wiley see ya